Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Sam. Uh, I run a YouTube channel called Seen Through Glass, which I often say is a bad ripoff of the old Top Gear. Uh, and super happy today to be chatting with John and Amy. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Driven Chat Podcast. My name is John Markar. Sat beside me is Amy Shaw. Hey, John. How are you? All right, how are you? Good, thanks. And we have a guest, as we have, as we always do. However, the guest isn't with us in person. They are with us in spirit and via FaceTime, though. He's not dead. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not dead. No. no. God, that's a way to open the podcast. <laughs> he's not dead. <laughs> but the spirit, when do you say that? Well, than... you know, my spirit could be with you even though I'm alive. No. Can it? No. Don't know. Spirit we'll... should be with you all the time that you're alive. <laughs> this is all getting very spiritual. We're only about 12 seconds in. Well, the spirit slash real person that we're talking to via FaceTime is Sam Fain. Hello, Sam. <laughs> I was so thinking, how do I come in with some kind of spiritual voice there? But uh, yes, hello. Thank you so much for having me. We can blame damn Storm Eunice for this, can't we? Yes. Separating us. Absolutely. So once again, we've done this a couple of weeks in a row now. We're recording very close to the day that we actually publish because we, just to just shatter the illusion of uh, podcast media, sometimes we record these 
weeks before they go out. And this, we're recording just a few days. So today is Friday, the 18th of February. And yes, as we speak, we are, we've got here in the UK weather warnings. Uh, don't go anywhere near an airport or a tree. Stand away from the windows. Stand away from your houses because your tiles are going to fall off. And I'm looking out of our office window right now and seeing nothing more than a very light breeze. <laughs> predictable for the British weather yeah. My, the news programme this morning I watched for an hour and it was just storm watchers you know having absolutely frothing at the mouth <laughs> <laughs> a local train embedded in the side of a supermarket look, look what it's exactly. done although I say all this you know we're recording this now at quarter past nine in the morning on Friday and uh, there, there is every given chance that by six o'clock this evening it all could have completely imploded on itself and I will look an absolute idiot to say <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> no change there, John. No, indeed. Yeah, quite, quite. He's done a Michael Fish, which will mean nothing to so many people. Don't even know why I said that. Anyway, Sam, welcome to our podcast. Uh, you're no stranger to podcasts, as everyone listening to this probably already knows. We, d- we did a podcast not long ago with Richard Porter, where I said Richard Porter also has a podcast. I mean, if people don't know that, then that's crazy, because if they're listening to us, they're probably listening to you. How are you? I'm good, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm I'm very good, and and yes, thank you for for mentioning. I've been been doing my own podcast now for for a couple of years, and I I love the podcast format. Like genuinely, whenever anyone gets in touch and invites me very kindly onto their own, I, I leap at the opportunity because I just think they're fun. It's it's a it's a great way to chat with people and talk about cars and connect and and share stories, which for me has always been the best part of the of the car world is, is the stories and okay a bit weird today because theoretically it's going to be all my own stories which makes me feel <laughs> a little uncomfortable um but but yeah no super super pro the podcast thing uh and uh we've been doing it as i say for a couple of years now and and it's a great it's a great fun way as i say of chatting yeah do you find because you're obviously you're known for doing your podcast but also i think originally primarily it was video content wasn't it so things like your youtube channel if do you still enjoy doing the video content or do you find because there's there's no secret that podcasts are drastically easier and cheaper and easier to manage than filming videos could you ever see yourself just focusing on podcasts or do you think no the video stuff is really important i want to keep doing that um commercially maybe um i think from a from a personal level i love creating and as you say the podcasts uh require very little sort of production effort or or creativity in the way that they're shot okay you have to think of topics each week and come up with those kind of storylines um but for me i get a real kick out of yeah you know creating video content so interestingly over the last year or so i'd say that the podcast has commercially become a lot more viable and taken on a whole sort of a new direction for me and as youtube becomes more and more competitive and and ad rates and all these things become lesser and lesser maybe there'll be a time when i go look actually the podcast is making me more money now than the youtube channel so i've got to focus on it more which i'm totally for but would i ever stop making videos i i hope not because i just i enjoy it even if i'm not doing it professionally I've always made videos, like, you know, home videos where I'm like, Dad, can you just walk past that, like, sign one more time? Um, <laughs> and all these kind of things. I, I've always been a, a video maker, not a filmmaker, but a video maker. So for people that may not have seen any of your videos, 
bring us right back to the beginning. When you first, like for me, when people say to me, how did you get into photography? I can honestly say that I truly started getting into it when I was about 16. It wasn't, wasn't when I became a professional car photographer. For you, it must have been something similar where somebody gave you some form of, I would have, it would have been, a, I guess, a camcorder rather than your, like your, an iPhone. I don't, I don't know, maybe you've only been doing it for two years or something. But how did, how did that journey start? Yeah, it's it's uh, n- not in an obvious way. There definitely was a moment, wasn't a moment where I went, oh, I, I want to make videos or, or, or anything like that. I think, yeah, from a very young age, I always had camcorders. You know, like literally, I can track it back to when I was, yeah, maybe nine, ten years old, and just filming stuff like whether it was me and my sister putting on amateur theatricals in the <laughs> living room or, let's say, holidays. Um, I went to boarding school, and so we used to make silly little sketch videos uh, in our boarding house and stuff. So I, I just was always creating and maybe creative. I was never sporty, which people who have seen my content will not be surprised about. Uh, so, you know, especially at boarding school, you've got to find another thing to do. Otherwise, the teachers start yelling at you. So I was always trying to be creative. But that was always just a, a hobby, like a, a background interest. Um, never anything that I thought I would do or want to do professionally. Um, so when I started, to, when YouTube sort of started to take off, um and maybe we'll come on to this in a little bit, I decided to start my own channel. I was 26 or 27, and again, it was pretty just like, well, I like making videos, I already make videos, I've uploaded to YouTube before just for just for the banter, um, <laughs> and so why not formalise that slightly and, and you know, and, and, and create a channel? But, yeah, I, it was definitely all by accident, and I couldn't say to you, this is when the passion started, but I've always loved film and I've always loved creating. That's interesting. Can you remember the early videos that you would have started? I guess at that point, you probably weren't thinking of it as a commercial entity. You probably weren't thinking, right, I'll make this and this will keep somebody happy and maybe that'll open a door to film with somebody else. Can you remember what that felt like in comparison to what you now, the process that now goes into making modern day videos? And are they still online for people to watch? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In <laughs> passing, there are still videos of me when I was like 16 years old Aww. on YouTube somewhere. I'm not going to reveal that channel name. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, when, when I first started, we've got to remember the insane rate that YouTube has grown over the last five to 10 years. Yeah. You know, it's a completely different platform now to it was then. And it is now a, a career, you know, people consider or, or are aware of people being professional YouTubers, which which is what I class myself. Whereas when I began, that was not a thing and it was a bit of a joke. Um, but I became aware of it being a sort of commercial uh, viability or, or, or having a, an opportunity. In my old job, I was doing PR for film and television. We used to do lots of red carpet events and stuff. And we started to get these YouTubers turning up on red carpets as celebrities. And and me and my colleagues were like, who the heck are these people? Like, it was Tanya Burr, who was a sort of makeup uh, YouTuber, Zoella, who was one of the sort of real uh, poster girls of YouTube UK, early days of KSI. And they were t- and I was like, how? You're not a celebrity. Like, get off, get off the red carpet. You're, you're wasting our time. Um, but then I sort of very quickly sort of tried to educate myself on it, started pitching YouTubers and social media creators to the brands that we were working with. So I was aware that it was a thing. Um, but when I started, my idea was distract myself from work, 
you know, engage with my hobby a bit more. And if it earns me 50 or 100 quid a month, great. It can fill up my car. Maybe I can buy some tickets to a Formula One race. Or, you know, that was the goal, 50 or 100 quid a month. You know, if it was 200 quid a month, wow, I'd, I'd made it. Um, and it was just about having fun. And the early videos, I filmed all point of view. Um, and, you know, that has its interesting connotations, uploading point-of-view videography online. Um, but this, this was very, um, very you know, uh, parental guidance content. Um, and, yeah, I would drive around with the camera strapped on my head and just filming cars that I would see and, and, and sort of talking about what I would, what I would view. Uh, and there were multiple reasons I did that. Firstly, I didn't want to be on camera because I never wanted one of my... PR clients to Google me after a pitch meeting and see this buffoon running around the streets of London going, oh, oh wow, a LaFerrari. Wait, but um, when you say you have a cam- had a camera on your head, is it like the train guy where it was like facing your own face? And then... No, I mean, so literally like a train guy, but not facing my face. Oh. So I, I had it facing outwards, looking through the windscreen. And as I said, I just drive around and, and it was, you're supposed to come on a ride with me around London. It was inspired by motorbike vloggers, actually. Obviously, like Amy, I know, well, both of you have big motorbike bike interest yeah. so you know when I when I was watching YouTube a lot I was really into to motorbike vloggers who would do that they'd have a camera strapped to their helmet and they would ride around and just comment on what they would see and what was going on I found it hilarious yeah. <laughs> and I thought oh, I'll try and replicate that in the car world um, so that was you know that was the other inspiration so yeah very humble beginnings and and those videos are online and you can you can follow me and the rate of progression between those videos and what I do now is quite amazing when I think about it. Um, but I still enjoy that. I still enjoy that format and that, and that content, weirdly enough, um, as long ago as it was. Do you, ever, do, you, do you ever get tempted to do it again? Just get out in the car, strap a POV camera on and no agenda, just go out and f- see what you find? So this is going to get really nerdy and a bit niche now. But I mean, so to answer your question, yes, I do. And, and maybe every nine to 12 months, I bring it back and I do, it's called a POV log, so a point of view nice. log. Um, and I bring them back. But what's so interesting is firstly, the audience has changed so much and grown so much that a lot of them are like, what is this? You know, you'll, <laughs> yeah. you'll get some like OG yeah. followers being like, oh yeah, the POV log is back. But a lot of other people are like, oh, it's making me dizzy. I don't really get it. Like, what's going on? <laughs> um, but also, when I started doing those pop vlogs, there were maybe five, ten people in and around London on a regular basis shooting cars, photography-wise, videography-wise. So it was a very exciting time. And, you know, I could get out in the week, even at the weekends, and have no idea what cars I would see mm. on the streets of London or even in Monaco or Los Angeles. It was so exciting. So all of my reactions were completely authentic. You know, I'd go around the corner and be like, oh, my God, it's a P1, it's a P1. <laughs> Where now it's so popular and so competitive, dare I say it, that by the time I would go out and film something on a Saturday, I know every car I'm going to see because they're plastered all over Instagram. You know, it, and so my excitement levels aren't the same. It's very hard to fake that mm-hmm. because, you know, I'll pull onto Sloan Street in central London or sorry, Chelsea in London, and I know the 10 cars I'm going to see. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, yeah, there's that four, five, eight. And so, yeah, so unfortunately, the format's kind of died through various different reasons. Um, but when I can, if I'm somewhere new or somewhere I haven't been, I'll, I'll try and do it because I like making the videos. They're fun to make. Yeah, that's awesome. It's so true what you say about the the fact that everything is so diluted now, isn't it? I mean, I think back to when you started your YouTube channel. It's similar, actually. We had a conversation a couple of times with, Tim Burton, Shmi 150, and he 
made the same remarks. You know, when he started out on his YouTube channel, it was a fairly new concept. There weren't, there might have been 15 to 20 other car vloggers, maybe worldwide, doing what you guys were doing. Nowadays, there are just countless channels. It's It has become a very, as you say, competitive market because of course everybody's having a go at it everybody wants to generate content everybody wants to make some money from it do you miss those days and I guess if the question I really like asking people that do what you do as a as a job is if there's somebody sitting at home now going I've always wanted to do that I've always wanted to film I've always wanted to be a YouTuber I've always wanted to go out and film cars on the road is there any point in even starting out if you want to make revenue from it Oh, such a good question. And I do, I do get asked it quite a lot on via email or, or direct message on my social media pages. And I always want to encourage people mm. because, as I say, firstly, I'm that sort of uh, douchebag who's the grass is always greener. You know, if you're stuck <laughs> at a nine to five job, but you're thinking, oh, I want to do something a bit more creative. I, I've been lucky enough to do it. And I'm like, yeah, do it. Come on, yeah. quit your job. Like, <laughs> um, but the truth of it is, I think it's now harder than ever mm. to really make it, you know, to get the revenue required to sustain any kind of lifestyle from YouTube. You know, even, you know, someone at my relative level, which in, in the grand scheme of things isn't massive on YouTube. You know, I'm half a million subscribers. It's, of course, it's big, but there are people out there with 20 million subscribers. Yeah, Shmi alone, you know, a couple of million. Um, the revenue that I'm earning per year dwindles you know month on month and is becoming yeah harder and harder to sustain my lifestyle which is why you see so many youtubers from all around the world commercializing their businesses in a different way Mm. so sponsorships advertising merchandise brand deals whatever it might be because you can't follow that same old formula which five years ago was totally fine which was upload three or four videos a week and make a fairly decent amount of money um so Is there still an opportunity? 100%. We see channels all over the world these days. I mean, there was, I can't remember his channel's name now, which is embarrassing, but a kid who uploaded 22 videos and in seven months gained 9 million subscribers. So it's totally still possible. Absolutely. Mm. I think for me, I think the fun has gone out of it. I think it's a lot harder to start up a channel in earnest and just have fun and upload for the fun of it and be creative and be silly. I think you have to be way more focused and targeted and analytical. And if you take the car space, if you just start another supercar YouTube channel, why is anyone going to watch that channel? Mm. It's, it's been done a million times. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all seen supercar content. So what are you bringing that's different? We've got young kids doing it, you know, seven, eight years old. That's fun and interesting because it's a kid's perspective. That's great. Mm. We get Harry Metcalf, Harry's Garage, has been a really interesting growth story over the last few years because he's coming at it from the other end. Loads of experience and stories and anecdotes and, you know, appealing to a slightly different audience. But that generic... I'm going to go out and film supercars. I think, unfortunately, that's dead in the water. So you've got to be more hypercritical over it, which I think removes just the fun, the natural fun of it, which used to be there back in the day. Do you think that TikTok has had a massive change to the way YouTube now works from both a consumer point of view and also a creating point of view? And... Is that something that you think to yourself, hmm, maybe it's this shorter... People, you know, people's lack of attention span now is a bit sad, really, but at the same time, you think, okay, well, if this is the way I want to continue my, my creativity, is that the avenue that you'll want to go down or would suggest to do over 
the YouTube longer video formats, or do you think there's still a space for both? I think TikTok has allowed YouTube content to become longer, weirdly enough. So, so uh, I hope I, I hope he's not going to uh, not appreciate me for saying this, but there's a great YouTuber in the US called The Stradman, James, uh, fascinating guy, and he spent years studying the algorithm. This this was okay, about wow. three or four years ago, and all the sort of uh, insights and analytics into uh, audience retention and things like that in the US specifically. And basically found out that the average retention span between 14 to 19-year-olds was something like seven seconds oh, in wow. the US. So he formalized his content to ensure that really every seven or 14 seconds, something was changing, an angle was changing, uh, there was something spinning, something was moving, so that theoretically people were always engaged. And so when you watch his content, it seems really manic and fast-paced, go, 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 everything. It's a bit like, whoa. But the channel blew up because... He cracked into something, especially in America, um, that, you know, really rewarded people's, yeah, short attention spans. And TikTok has definitely made that even shorter. Um, and people want constant in- entertainment. But I think now people come to YouTube for longer form content. You know, when you sit down in the evening, I think you're going from Netflix to Amazon Prime to YouTube. Um, for that sort of, you know, I'm going to watch a 20, 25 minute video where TikTok's when you're lying in bed or you're on the train or you're doing whatever it might be and you're just, you know, mindlessly skimming through. So from that point of view, I quite appreciate what TikTok's done. Um, but making long form content isn't easy. No, <laughs> like, you know, right. the, the, especially the way that I personally like to produce content, which is theoretically high production value to keep somebody engaged for 20 minutes and to film enough content to fill 20 minutes, you know, it's, it's getting more and more intense. Um, but there are plenty of people out there filming 20-minute vlogs on their iPhones and telling me, you know, you're just overthinking it. But, um, yeah, it's, an, it's a very interesting time on YouTube for sure. I think it's a very interesting time on any kind of video output. I've become fairly obsessed, mainly thanks to a very recent Louis Theroux documentary that came out about this new trend which is i say new trend god i sound like i'm 85 (laughs) have you heard of the internet um, but this current there's a huge huge wave of interest at the moment in live streaming and this is people that go out for hours at a time with a phone on a stick plugged into a charge pack and they're just walking around and there's no pre-production thought there's no planning that's gone into it it's just i'm going to walk around and talk and people can donate dollars to me or pounds to me and in return they can play some audio out of a speaker that I've knowingly and willingly strapped to my chest and you think you know I see clips of this stuff online I've never actually sat through I've never I've never watched a live stream but you see these clips and then you realize oh my goodness me there are hundreds and hundreds of people doing this and that kind of goes against everything in the sense of keep your content engaging and focused and fast-paced and keep things moving this is just I'm walking down Ocean Beach now and here's a pine tree and oh look that man's dropped his ice cream and the sea's looking nice and and I'm like I can't work it out I'm just like how how is this a thing it it's so strange isn't it because I think YouTube has always predominantly been the new reality TV. You know, from day yeah. one, if you, if you track back to, you know, Big Brother and then all the Kardashian shows and things like that, YouTube became an even more... Um, <clears throat> a way to di- delve into people's lives in a, in a more uh, personal way. Um, bedroom vloggers, Zoella, that, like, you know, were letting you into their lives. Mm. And I think live streaming 
is the next version of that. You know, as you say, it removes all creativity. You're just perversely watching somebody else's life. Mm. And the the pandemic that we've just been through has, I think, you know, brought that to the forefront because people have been sitting at homes bored, needing escapism. And, you know, a lot of the channels that I've become obsessed with over the last couple of years are travel channels. You know, I, I watch a couple that live on a boat and are currently in the Bahamas. I watch a couple that drive around America in a van. I watch a couple that fly around the world because, you know, that's the stuff that I want to be doing, but I'm not doing enough of and I'm intrigued by. And that's because I, you know, I came back off the a lot of traveling into the pandemic. But in general, we're all doing it so I haven't watched any live streaming either. I'm not sure I could. <laughs> but I can, I can understand why it does well and why people watch it because, yeah, it's the ultimate form of reality TV. Um, and you're just sitting back and, and watching somebody's life. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's like when you used to like put on Big Brother in like live streaming in the mornings when you couldn't yeah. really sleep. And then it just, you'd, you'd watch them literally sleeping and you'd like, yeah. this is yeah. weird. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just like, but it's so interesting. Why am I watching it? <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. You're what you mean. so right. It's you know, it, it it's odd, and so you know, you've got this kind of massive broad spectrum now of yeah, the live streaming where you know you're just literally watching somebody else's life, TikTok, which sometimes can be hyper creative, twenty second bits of content, and then this long form kind of you know uh, YouTube content, which some of it like some of the production levels on YouTube are insane, but also some of the kind of mad stuff that's going on. Realistically, now the biggest growth on YouTube comes from the kind of crazy, you know, if you look at the Mr. Beast, you know, I bought oh, yeah. a $1 million island and I'm giving it away for free or stand in this circle for 36 hours and win $200,000, you know, all this kind of like mental stuff. And that that's where the real growth is. So we're seeing a lot of extremities, I think, mm. in terms of online content um, in, in every sort of which way. And again, that makes it even harder to break into because, you know, unless you're prepared to really push yourself and your bank balance and all these different things just generic content doesn't seem to want to do very well at the moment yeah what's this is potentially a very difficult question to answer but what do you think the future is of youtube like let's say 10 years from now which in it might not seem like a long way away but in the terms of technology and just social media as a as a platform can you see youtube still being a thing in 10 years I 100% see YouTube still being a thing. I, I think it will, again, look very different to how it looks now. Mm. Just as YouTube looked so different five or ten years ago, you know, the rate of growth is terrifying. Me personally, and trying to think of it really from a, from a brand perspective and a money perspective, I think it's going to be harder and harder for a creator to, to sustain a living or to be rewarded enough from YouTube AdSense or ad revenue to you know make it an attractive proposition and so therefore i think channels are going to become more and more commercialized and the content we're going to end up seeing on youtube is going to be a rival to netflix i think we're going to see less and less of this sporadic reality tv or if we are it's going to be more formalized already you see so many creators with videographers editors styling content it's I say it's, it's less casual than it was. It's much harder just to be you in your bedroom and start up a channel. Um, and I think in the next 10 years, the, you know, the content's going to become a lot more polished and formal and commercialised, even if it looks raw, even if it looks like it's being filmed on an iPhone. There are agencies out there now poaching people from TikTok to start YouTube channels. There are people scouting for next YouTube talent and, and putting that forward, again, with a commercial mindset. It's, it's the pop, pop music industry all over again is, is essentially what it is. 
and the grassroots will always exist, but on a very small level. And to have the big success on YouTube, you're going to have to have a backing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it is at all. And as I say, you know, personally, the content I watch on YouTube is already going in that direction. Um, so it's an evolution. But where does that push the grassroots creator? Probably to a, a TikTok or a stream or something which is more accessible and, and easier to do on your own without needing um, a big commercial backing, which is what I think YouTube will require. Yeah. Got you. And what are your thoughts on the other social platforms as well? Because I, you know, I, I find it all very fascinating. Even from a personal point of view, I used to really focus on social media. I, I used to think it was very important. I guess, in a sense, it was because it ended up putting me into a career going from doing some very mundane day jobs through to and having cars and the media and that sort of thing as an interest. It's now allowed me through just a big social media push to actually do this as a job. But I've certainly taken a bit more of a step back from trying to be as active as I am on social media. But at the same time, I'm trying to grow things like the Driven Chat social feeds as a perfect example in this world of already well-established social media accounts and YouTube accounts and things like that. I'm constantly fascinated by what works, what's good, what's bad. And it's really interesting as well, looking at what other people are saying. You know, the amount of times I go into Instagram now and people are just like, oh my God, this platform's dead. You can't, <laughs> you know, if you want engagement, you've got to be posting 85 reels every five seconds. And, and uh, what, is, what is your opinion on it? Do you find it's, is it that important? And what are the platforms that really work for you? And what are the ones that you wish would just maybe go away? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all hate Instagram right now, don't we? I mean, I think uh, it's it's a very interesting. Well, I was the same as you. You know, I think when I started, I was trying to spread myself across every platform possible. I thought I got to reach as many people as possible, build them all, and you know, especially you know when you start dealing with brands, they want to know about you know what your engagement is on every different yeah. platform you're on. You know, Instagram was always very important for me. If I'm if I'm honest, that's where seen through glass. What you know, what I do online started. You know, I, I had a much quicker growth on Instagram than I did on YouTube. Um, it was always a much bigger platform for me, right up until about 150, 175,000 followers, and, and then YouTube finally sort of overtook. Um, I, I think it's, yeah, it's a platform which seems to be struggling at the moment, but I, I won't deny I'm often on. I don't know how to... I don't know how to engage on it properly. You know, I, I, I'm confused by it. Do I care? Not so much. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of a bit. I'm definitely not sitting here going, "Oh my god!" Like, I've got to, you know, grow followers. I think maybe it's come with time and experience, just like you were saying there, John, and I'm sure Amy as well. We had a brief conversation about this when we were in Austria together recently on a, on a project. I think with time and with experience, you start to care less about that sort of hand over fist growth and you know the sort of big numbers and the sort of panic and the anxiety over you know what's my next content how am I going to get this out and settle into your online profile a bit more so you know I, I'm fairly confident and happy with the audience that I've got I feel like I know them really well I feel like they know me really well and therefore if I don't post on Instagram for four or five days I feel like they kind of get it yeah. and I kind of get it and I feel less a need to scrape the bottom of the barrel just to post anything. Yeah. Um, Twitter, I used to be on Twitter loads. And from a, as a Formula One fan, I love Twitter because the amount of information that comes from it. Mm. Do I post on Twitter? Basically never. <laughs> um, Facebook, I'm not sure I even know my login details anymore. <laughs> uh, um, 
TikTok, I've tried. I've really tried. I'm just not young enough. I'm I'm not in good enough shape. I'm not <laughs> funny enough. Like, so, you know, I, I consume a huge amount of it because I think maybe maybe we will do. I don't know. But I haven't figured out how to post on it. Um, and anything beyond that, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm fairly un, un, un-existent, if that makes sense. So it's tricky. I mean, YouTube's my sole focus. It's what I enjoy. At the end of the day, it's what makes me money. All yeah. those other platforms, you know, they don't pay me. Uh, brands might sponsor content, but um, yeah, I, I have to focus on YouTube, and that's where I get the yeah, most reward. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. That's fair enough. And if money was no object, I, think, I realize we've been talking about YouTube now for quite a long time, so we'll, we'll try and focus, <laughs> we'll, we'll try and move away from social media and, and whatnot. Uh, but one last question on the, the YouTube front if money was no object, if I came to you with a, a blank check and said, "Look, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna broker a deal here where you're going to be sponsored by Oxygen, you know, something that's infinite, so there's, there's as much money as you want." What would your channel look like? You know, I, I, I don't think it would look too different to what it does now, but just maybe, you know, sort of to the maximum. So, for example, instead of borrowing a, an M5 CS from BMW and driving to Wales, maybe I'd be buying a BMW Z8 and driving to Tanzania or something. Do you know what I mean? I think <laughs> it, everything I want to do uh, is just limited a little bit by by finances and and timings and all these things like that. So if I had infinite money, I'd just be doing all those adventures. You know, I, I really want to do the Panamericana Highway mm-hmm. all the way from Alaska down to the southern tip of mm-hmm. Argentina through Patagonia and stuff. And that's so doable, but it would be even more doable if I had the budget to, to I mean, do it all. In so. saying this, one of your biggest, what I think would be one of your biggest adventures, is the fact that you have already driven around the world. So that's, you know, that's <laughs> a pretty big adventure. I mean, tell, tell the listeners a little bit more about that adventure, because that's obviously something that people sometimes say, you know, one day I'd like to drive around the world. You know, car people, or the, especially, you know, road trip people are like, one day I'm going to get this car and drive it, this place and this place, this place ending up on the other side of the world and back again. That must have been something for you that was, I mean, logistically, how did that go? Yeah, Yeah, I had a few panic attacks uh, in the lead up to and during. Uh, But yeah, so this was was 2019. um, And uh, between between you and I, and I guess your listeners, uh, you know, I was fairly fed up with, with YouTube and social media at the end of 2018. There were more and more car channels starting. I... I was lacking a bit of identity. I wasn't quite sure what I could do. I, I'd done the buy a car, drive it to Monaco, you know, come back to the UK and do some sort of... I'd done that for three or four years in a row and was looking for something different. And it started as a, OK, well, I'm going to do a series of content. I'm going to travel for a month, take a month off, travel for a month, take a month off. And that just kept building and building. And eventually I went, heck, I'll just, I'll just do it all in one and, and drive the world. So it was a year, year of planning. Um, six months of heavy logistics, many sleepless nights. I lost about 10 kilos in weight due to stress. <laughs> it's not even a joke. Um, uh, but yeah, so essentially, it wasn't quite as adventurous as setting off from London and circumnavigating the globe, which I would have loved to do. Um, my mindset at the time was that my channel still wanted supercar content. They were a supercar audience and they wanted supercar content. I was going to try and take them on a journey around the world saying, look, there's lots of other cool car cultures around the world that you should engage with. Um, that was the aim, at least. And so got a 911 Carrera T, beautiful car, uh, which we ended up driving across Australia, 
all of Europe and North America, uh, which included Canada, did about 30,000 miles on it. And whilst the car was on a big, you know, shipping a, a container ship going between those countries, I would fly in and out of other countries and borrow cars locally. So Japan, South Africa, um, where else to go? Dubai, Hawaii, all these different places. Um, and it was amazing. You know, it's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, heavily funded by my audience, which was incredible. Started a Kickstarter. My audience donated like £30,000. Unbelievable. Mm. Um, a huge amount of other commercial partners. Um, it was a lot and it was unbelievable. And I think about it every single day now and want to do it all over again. I would do it completely differently now than I did two or three years ago. Um, but an amazing experience and something that, yes, I encourage everyone to do at some point. Okay, then. How, um, how would you do it differently now then with the experience that you've got? So firstly, I would be a little bit more adventurous because I have more confidence in my audience now in terms of not just focusing on the supercar content. Um, I would slow down. We were never anywhere more than two days. Oh. And, you know, we went through, I think it was 36 countries in the end. And we were going through Australia, you know, from Brisbane to uh, Sydney. There are guides out there saying, you know, the minimum amount of time is two weeks. Like, mm. you've got so We did it in two days. Like, we, <laughs> yeah. we were just driving. Like, and so from an adventure point of view, we missed so much. It was just get to the city, film the next video. And I started the year aiming to make seven pieces of content per week. That was four YouTube videos, wow. a podcast, and sponsor content. After three weeks, I realised that wasn't that wasn't possible. So, yeah, I would just slow it all down. That's what I would do. I, I would do a lot of the similar stuff, but slow it all down. Um, and I hope to do it again at some point in the future, Drive the World 2.0. I, I tease to my audience constantly, um, but the pandemic slightly got in the way. So <laughs> we'll see. From a... Um... From a car culture point of view, were there any countries, car cultures, which surprised you or you thought, this is amazing, I didn't realise how much this was a thing? Like, some of the car cultures that I see in Japan looks insane, something I've, I've never, you'd never experienced anywhere other than that country. What are some of those, um, yeah, some, some of those places and cultures that you thought, this is, this is super cool? Absolutely. I think it was, there was a lot of eye-opening experiences for sure. Um, yeah, Japan, you're right. I had so, such high expectations for Japan and, and every single expectation was met. But there were some other surprising places, you know. So Malaysia was very interesting. Um, it's a country where their tax system means that any kind of prestige car is insanely expensive. So realistically, unless you're a kind of millionaire, you're not getting anything nice. But that doesn't mean that there's not a car culture. There is an insane car culture there. They are so passionate about their cars. And they're just basically modifying, you know, relatively, well, pieces of junk, but, but in a really nice way. You know, they're buying a Ford, you know, Golf R's, for example, which is, of course, not a piece of junk, but, you know, old minis, you know, just anything which they can get their hands on that's affordable and just modifying the hell out of them, sometimes in a really classy way, sometimes in a really Japanese way. Like they, It's everything, and, and that was awesome to see. Um, parts of Europe where I didn't know there was a car culture that, you know, I mean, Portugal, oh, my God, we did two really, uh, you know, last-minute meetups, which is not something I do very much, that were, you know, I had hundreds if not thousands of people turning up at really short notice, loving their cars, um, uh, Poland as well really surprised me with, with the car culture there South Africa really interesting they have some really big collections there because of I guess maybe the political situation they're not driving them much but you go into these kind of warehouses and find some of the most incredible classics you know hidden away and, and being sort of stored 
And then also parts of America, you know, you forget how big America is and you can be in the what you think is the arse end of nowhere, America, mm. deep, darkest Kansas, take a small little turning to the right. And then you've got a guy who's got a 75, you know, car collection of 250 GTOs and God knows what. And yeah, there was so much to be excited about. Um, but I would also then say the flip side of it is the supercar phenomenon has slightly ruined car culture. So take mm. India, for example. I was really excited to find out what car culture was like in India. Not somewhere you really think of as being somewhere that's really into their cars, maybe into their mopeds. You see lots of big, you know, uh, decorated trucks and stuff. And I turned up and maybe it's because of my audience, but the only people that reached out to me were like Lamborghini owners. And I'm driving around Delhi in a Lamborghini and I'm thinking, this just this isn't what I wanted to do. Like, I don't like, it's not the experience I really wanted to have or, or cared about. And I think money has become more accessible worldwide to lots of people and so have these supercars. And I was just hoping that there would be a different side of India, which I ended up finding in Jaipur with these great modified Suzuki Jimny-esque things cool. and some classics from, you know, the old uh, old historic area of India, you know, old Rolls Royces, old Bentleys and stuff. So it is there. It's just a bit harder to find these days. Interesting. I would have thought that India, as I said, it would have been something that had a lot more kind of, I suppose with the classic cars, but I don't know. I mean, my, my own experience from going to India, it tends to be that some of the driving conditions of the roads are so difficult. It, it's it's insane to try and drive. Or, you know, I did, I did a motorbike um, thing through India and I was in like the, uh, some really, I was in Goa. So I was in the really easy side to, to go and ride. And <laughs> even then I was like, this is still crazy. So to, to own something that you're actually very precious about. I can imagine it being quite scary. And so maybe it's just that you don't always see them or people just don't bother. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know more than me now. <laughs> well, no, no, but, but that's the whole thing. You know, that's what I was hoping to find is that there were, there were fun, quirky vehicles that people were excited by or modifying in a cool way that, yeah, that weren't supercars. Because you're right, it's not the place you would think of wanting to own a supercar because of the the road infrastructure the mentality uh, everything about it it just is a terrifying experience you know <laughs> driving around delhi in a hurricane i, I was absolutely pulling yeah. myself um, <laughs> but that's where maybe maybe i didn't tap into it because you know again that's what i'm saying about my audience is that i think at the time they came to my channel for supercars. So they were interested in supercars. They were supercar owners. They were connected to supercar world. So everywhere I went when I said, and I relied on my audience massively for the whole trip. You know, I was going to India and I was putting out messages across my social media saying, hey guys, this is where I'm going to be. What should I film? And everyone was coming back suggesting supercars. Mm. And I said, that's, that's probably because of the content I was creating at the time where now, even if I'm doing a trip to... Spain or Wales or Scotland, I can put a post out saying, hey, guys, I'm doing a trip. What should I check out? And I'm getting coffee shop recommendations, uh, weird, you know, mechanics or tuners or a car collector. You know, just really interesting and different stuff because I think I've tailored my content more towards that, which is why I would be more excited about doing the trip again because I think I'd get more of those recommendations. Yeah. I'd be fascinated to learn, Sam, where did this car journey start for you? Um... I, if I'm honest, Formula One. Yeah. So so road cars didn't really become such a big part of my life until I started this YouTube channel. I've I got to be honest with that. You know, I, I'm Formula One obsessed, um, have been forever, wanted to be a racing driver, was crap, so didn't become one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I was always into my road cars, but 
I would probably see a 911 and know if I was looking at a Turbo yeah. or a Carrera, but probably not know if I was looking at a 4S or a GTS or a Pazza or whatever. Uh, and then when I started the YouTube channel, I, I had to and learned so much. You know, there were early videos on, oh, I don't know, you know, maybe some of your audience remember this. There's Piston Heads threads attacking me for going to, like, you know, Goodwood meetups and being like, oh, what is this crappy golf? Like, how is this here? Like, that's that can't be on the line. When actually now I know it was like an anniversary, you know, GTR, like, beautiful thing. With great... <laughs> but I, I was super uneducated at yeah. the time. I didn't, I didn't know and I didn't have an appreciation. So it's grown and grown over the recent years. But, yeah, Formula One was the starter. And my mum. My mum's always been into her cars. Really? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. mum's cool. Yeah, my mum's very, very cool. Uh, she was always an Audi girl, originally a Porsche girl, but became an Audi girl. So when I was growing up, I had A4 Cabriolets and S5s <laughs> and very illegally used to let me drive by sitting on her lap and doing the steering wheel <laughs> she did the pedals. Um, so, yeah, so the, so the road car passion really came, came from her, I guess. Amazing. And do you have a, I guess, well, you probably answered the question already before I've asked it, but early childhood memories of cars, because I always I like to try and dig into what might have been that little light bulb moment for, for little miniature Sam. You know, I have very, very distinct memories of being small. And it's, it's interesting, every time I speak to somebody who's you know, done fairly well for themselves in this industry, some of the, the stories that you hear from, oh, actually, I remember being three and doing this. Do you have any of those? I think everything for me is around is around Ferrari. So, so you know, my my audience will be very aware of this. You know, I am, I'm Ferrari through and through, and and have been forever because of the Schumacher Formula One era. Mm. You know, I, I really started watching Formula One obsessively, sort of 1997, realistically, and that was you know the start of the Schumacher Ferrari story, really. Um, and so that then bled into the into the road cars. And, you know, Ferrari 360s, Ferrari 599s, 575s, things like that. I remember my, weirdly, I wonder what year that film came out. There was a Nicolas Cage film called Fam- Family Man. It's oh, not yeah. one of his best, but it's a, it's a good film. <laughs> Is there any think, good Nicolas Cage film? Hey, sorry. let's be careful. Oh, oh, That's a, have you seen National Treasure? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I think, I can't remember who the wife is. Maybe it's Tia Leone, is that her name? I'm googling. I'm googling. Oh, do you know what? It, have a guess when you think the Family Man came out. Two thousand and one. Very close. It was two thousand, but in my head it was like mid nineties. But yeah, that, that okay. So two thousand. So in that film, he drives a five fifty or maybe a five seven five, and he rocked up the building at one point. And I think because of the Ferrari Formula One link, Schumacher, and I loved that film. And that scene was always like for me. I was like. <laughs> to, to be crass, up until I was about 21, that was the life I was trying to replicate with him as a, when, when, when he was a douchebag, when, you know, when he wasn't the nice family guy, when he was the successful bachelor living in this insane apartment and driving this badass Ferrari So you Ferrari just go around, around. thinking, I, I just, just want to be Nicolas Cage. Is that it? Literally, yeah, basically, <laughs> I want to be Nicolas Cage. So that's probably one of the earlier memories I have. Um... But yeah, the road car thing, I say, it developed later in life when I was sort of getting to driving. So 16, 17 was when I started to really get into into road cars and, and away from race cars. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll put Nicolas Cage down as being, <laughs> as being one of my early influences. Well, yeah, inspirations, really. It's, it was funny you saying about, you know, you, you always thought to yourself you'd want to be a, a racing car driver because then looking at uh, some of your, your your videos, you've actually been able to do some stuff with a very famous racing car driver a number of times. It looks like you guys are, are buddies. Do you want to talk about that? I those? would love to think so. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, 
the truth of, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when I started the channel, if I could earn 50 or 100 quid, great. But at the time I was, you know, I'd gone off to have my own PR consultancy and the aim of that was to try and work in Formula One or work with Formula One brands. You know, I'd been working in film and entertainment for, for 10 years at that point, but I really still loved F1. So that was the aim. And then <laughs> little did I know, YouTube was going to get me closer to Formula One than, than anything ever had. And yeah, I ended up filming with Sebastian Vettel, I think maybe four times or something like that. The uh, It was all through Shell. I, I've been partnered with Shell now for about five years, one of the brands I work with a lot, and, and they've been fantastic to me. And, yeah, when, when Vettel was at Ferrari, we did a lot of work together. And, I mean, I'm so glad you thought we were friends, Amy, because I think we're friends. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he thinks uh, that too. I think so, you know. I'm so terrified now that I'm going to see him at some point. He's going to go, what? Who? Um, <laughs> but what a fascinating guy, you know. I, I, I will admit during the Red Bull years I wasn't his fan, um, but I think he's really coming to himself during the Ferrari era and now Aston Martin and... Whenever you work with any kind of talent, and you, you guys will know this from, from various lines of work, you know, there's often people around the talent who are like, oh, you know, it's going to be high pressure. You've you got, you got 30 seconds, you can get oh, a couple yeah. of shots. Like, don't look them in the eye. Don't smell them. Like, just be like... <laughs> and with Ferrari Formula One teams specifically, but Ferrari in general, let's face it, they are so pedantic like this. You yeah. know, you, everything is super... You've got to submit all your questions in advance. Mm -hmm. You submit five, you get told you can ask one. Your time gets reduced every... Several, you know, how long have I got? And this kept happening. And then finally we got them... The first video I had to film with him was he was going to take me out for a ride in a 488. And so I... OK, your time's on. And I was running around putting all these GoPros mm -hmm. on the car, flapping, stressing. I was like, cool, I'm done, I'm ready. And uh, he was then, he went, oh, hi, I'm Seb. I was like, I know. Um, <laughs> and ended up chatting me for like 20 minutes about what it is to be a YouTuber, how it works, oh, how wow. can you become a YouTuber. How... And I was sitting there being like, are we running out of time? Like, I've still got to film a video. Like, don't waste all your time with chat. <laughs> Mark Genet, who's a famous, you know, Ferrari Formula 1 test driver, he came over, joined in the chat. Like, it was unbelievable. So there's me pinching myself. And finally he goes, well, should we film this video? I'm like, yeah. And we get in the car. And I said, look, to really work on YouTube, you kind of need to really drive the tits off this thing. You've got to scare me a little bit. And he just goes, okay, I'll try. And still to this day, it's the most incredible passenger ride I've, oh, I've ever wow. had in my life. Like, the car never sat still. Like, it felt like we were on water. Like, it was yeah. just moving continuously. And, uh, yeah, super nice guy and got to meet him and film with him a few more times after that. So, epic. Oh, that's amazing. You're so, it's so true what you say about this bizarre media world of Formula One where these drivers, a lot of them who you would expect to have amazing personalities, to be really dynamic and want to be having a good laugh, like having fun with anyone that wants to talk to them. And they almost seem to have taken a tablet that just zaps all the personality out of them. And it's almost as if somebody's whispered in their ear, and I don't know the, the inner depths of Formula One well enough to understand if this is true or not, but it's as if somebody's gone into their ear and said, please don't be exciting, please don't show emotion, please don't smile or cry or react in any way to any circumstance because that would be bad for our brand. So you just see these amazing, talented, dynamic people who in your head you're thinking, come on, you you drive Formula One cars for a living, you're clearly an exciting person, and yet they sit there with a nonchalant expression on their face and just go, yeah, I really like the product that I wear on my wrist and the shoes I wear and my car is nice. Do you, 
how how is because you obviously have been up close and personal now around the F1 circuit. Can you see it firsthand as you're going around, or is it just something that seems to happen for TV? No, I mean I, th- I think there is a mixture. I think I think firstly, like, and again, I, I try and correlate it with with previous experience I had. So in in the film world, I think when you're doing interview after interview after interview after interview, you do become a bit of a robot. I think I think there's definitely a lack of enthusiasm and a desire to get out of that situation as quickly as possible. So the the chances I've had to meet Formula One drivers away from the circuit or away from a race weekend, they do tend to be a little bit more chirpy and exciting than they are on camera. (laughs) But I also think, and maybe you've got some racing drivers who are listening who are going to yell at me now, I think they just are, some of them are quite boring. Like, you know, like <laughs> to, to, to be that good and that focused and that, you know, um, I don't know what, competitive, it means that maybe you're lacking in some other areas and, and just some of them are just a bit bland. Um, and sure, there'll be a, a media training that goes on, but... Um, Hey, look, we're lucky. We've got Lando Norris, we've got Daniel Ricciardo, yes, yes, even yes. Carlos Sainz. Time, you know, there's a new generation coming through who seem more to have more personality, to be more accessible. Um, but you know, I don't know. Other sports, footballers are boring as well, aren't they? Like, if you look, you know, like, they're also boring. And I mean, tennis players are sometimes all right. Like, it's quite rare that you get really sort of, you know personality-filled sports people at the end of the day. That is true. I guess that's actually a very good point because if you think of a... trying to think of an easier way to describe it. If you work in an office, dear listener at home, if you work in an office and maybe there's 50 other people that share that office space, out of that 50 people, how many of them are actually exciting, engaging people? Maybe two. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're not. You know, you might and, be there sitting, if, th- sitting there thinking, actually, hang on. Oh, God, I'm one of those boring people. I'm the boring one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, so in any other field it's going to be exactly the same. You've got a grid of however many Formula One drivers. Not all of them are going to be exciting and engaging. And I guess we, Joe Public, are so used to, right, I'm sat down now watching my portal into the world of entertainment, which is either my television, my mobile phone, or my laptop screen. Uh, So therefore, everyone I'm seeing, by default, has to be entertaining. But they're not entertaining. They're not entertainers. They're somebody that's a professional at what they're doing, and therefore... That's it. That that's all of their capacity is taken up by the professionalism. And if if they're anything more, if they're a bit more engaging and exciting, then that's a bonus, really, isn't it? Yeah, and and don't forget as well. You know, we're especially with Formula One. You're looking at all different nationalities from all over the world, different cultures, yeah. different character traits. You know, uh, you know, Nico Rosberg. I think you know famously and and would acknowledge that he got a lot of hate a lot of the time for you know uh, how he would say certain things or his on camera form or whatever. He's German, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> yeah. Bless them, and and the Germans are often very good at taking the out of themselves for being quite blunt and often unapologetic and unamused. And and Vettel is a bit different from that. And and you know, I think thanks British comedy for giving him that side of his personality. But yeah, you you can't always understand why a Finnish person is going to be a little bit you know more blunt or a little bit uh, shorter with their words but as a nationality they, they tend to be that way so we sit here and be like oh Bottas is so boring 
but but you know at the day he's probably actually hilarious <laughs> yeah. but in that situation he's like you know i just revert to just being pretty you know uh quiet and by myself and get on with the job <laughs> yeah i suppose like for me when when you're when you end up having to talk to people a lot like on, a, on a on a photo shoot sometimes i've got to direct a lot of people and a lot of people talk to me and I'm, by the end of it I'm, I'm an introvert really i'm an extroverted introvert so by the time it gets just to to me chatting to people i'm like i just don't want to talk to anybody anymore so <laughs> if that is i suppose it being in any form of you know public eye you you talk to people so much and sometimes you must just want to think I just want to sit back on my own, scroll TikTok and have a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Damn TikTok. Scroll YouTube, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> I've got to scroll on YouTube. <laughs> but no, it is, it is very understandable. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's there are definitely people I, I remember thinking, okay, you're, you're a lot more excited than I thought you were going to be. But what's uh, f- funny, actually, I've met... Um, met Charles Leclerc twice for two shoots. First one, he was super, uh, he's still lovely, but he was super like, oh, hey, this is exciting. This is cool. I've not really done too many of these yet. And he just, just been signed with, with, um, with Ferrari. And then I met him about three years later with Vettel, actually. And he was like, sup. Like, it was a completely yeah. different... What's going on? Yeah. I'm here for my shoot. <laughs> it's so interesting. That, you know, when, when you follow the direction of someone, you know, who goes through a huge success and, you know, world of celebrity or fame or, or, or success, you know, does does change you no matter what. Because as you say, you become more used to experiences or you have a certain confidence or you've been through things. And, yeah... I, I've seen it for sure, not only in the world of social media, but yeah, Formula One or, or back in the day, you know, my previous job. And funnily enough, before I started YouTube, I, I did three work jobs with, with Hamilton, with Lewis Hamilton. So first time was, I think, 2012, just as he was leaving McLaren. And I, you know, big, big fanboy. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with Hamilton. And every photographer, every colleague of mine was like, he's a, he's a dick. You're not going to want to work with him, he's a dick. And uh, he turned up and he was a dick, you know. I think the, 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 the job started at like 5am and he'd come straight from the club and he was wearing sunglasses and didn't want to talk to anyone. But I was like, I'm going to become this guy's friend. And by the end of it, we literally were like, you know, high-fiving and he was like, ah, oh, thanks so much, man, this was great. And I was like, yeah, bro, call me sometime. <laughs> um, and about six months later, he came to a, another event and I was like, guys, I, I got Lewis. Like, we're good, we're tight, like, it's, it's going to be cool. So I ran over to his car to open the door and take him through the event. Opened it and he went, yeah, cool, and I got someone else with me. Like, I'm fine. And just started walking. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, yeah, cool, bro. And I, like, catch up real soon, yeah? Like, no stress. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I think it must be weird for these individuals living the life they do. And we're, I guess, lucky to, to meet them and, and spend some time with them. But, um, yeah, they're, they're often in their own little world, I think. Next time you um, you bump into Lewis at whatever thing you're, you're at, you just be like, Oh, you're, you're Lewis. Oh, hi. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no way. Okay. I think, did we work together? Yeah, yeah. I feel like we've met, but I don't know if we have yeah. or if you just look at Maybe it like it my cousin. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh bless God, them. so good. No, but, it must know, be. It is the way of the world. It is the way of the world. And it's so true. You know, we, we all give some serious grief to, I think, all sports personalities, not just Formula One drivers, but it is so easy to forget that we are just the observer a lot of the time. We are one of many millions of people that are fascinated by these individuals. And, of course, we see them most of the time. We consume them at a time where they're doing what they do best or they're being interviewed on a chat show. And, of course, of course, you're going to give your best version of yourself. You're not going to be the I just want to sit on TikTok and scroll version of yourself in an interview. So, therefore, for the vast majority of people, they're seeing these people in this kind of hyped up media version of themselves so suddenly when they do see them out of that world you know the classic examples of people 
going up to celebrities on the street and going, oh, hi, uh, or, or comedians is a classic word. Tell me a joke. And it's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm in Tesco, just like you are, trying to find cauliflower. Please leave me alone. And it's like, and then that person will get grief. Like, oh, my God, what a horrible person. He didn't tell me a joke. And you just think, come on, like, the humans not in their workplace yeah, you know yeah it is i think our connection with the people and this you know this does translate to social media our connection with the people we watch or we see online and you know whether they're playing characters and, and maybe people on social media are playing versions of themselves yeah. we feel like we know them we feel Completely. connected to them we feel like we understand them and and so there's an immediate thing where you see someone on the street you go oh yeah like hey or you yeah. know, whatever it might be and and you never know what that person's going through. You never really know what they're like. And and I listen to, there's a great podcast, which is done by an actor called, or comedian called Dax Shepard out in the US, where I say this is giving more insights to my uh, obsession with, with film and acting. Um, but yeah, he, he sits down for these long interviews with actors, with big A-list Hollywood celeb actors. And I find it fascinating just to, you know, to, to understand what goes into that craft, because I think it's a very weird thing to be a very good actor. But they all tell these stories of, you know, especially if you're well-known for a role, the interactions that people will give them or, or, or expect from them. And they're often very different to their characters, you know. And, of course. Uh, I watched that Friends reunion episode on a, on a plane recently. You know, you look at people like Joey. We all know Joey, right? Like, mm. Joey is Joey. If you saw Joey in the street, you'd be like, yeah, it's Joey. Like, but that's Matt LeBlanc, and he's a very different person he's not joey he's a he's an individual's character and we saw that when he came over and did uk top gear um and i think sometimes it's hard for us to understand that when you spend so much time watching a, an individual um to realize that they're not the person you've been watching for the last three years or, or consistently on a tv show yeah it's so true i've got a so a, a friend of a friend stars in a uh, one of the big uk soaps eastenders and he has stories where he played a slightly villainous role. This is many, 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 many years ago. He's a long-standing uh, Ian Beale, long-standing long actor, Adam, on uh, on EastEnders. And he was saying that there was a particular... I can't remember what the storyline is. I don't watch EastEnders. But there was a big storyline where he was the bad guy. He was the villain. And he, he told a story once about how he was walking down his local high street, you know, the town that he lives in, and there were people heckling like shouting abuse. I can't believe you did that to Janine or whoever it was. And he was like, you, you understand that I, my name's Adam. It's not me. And I'm <laughs> acting. Ian's not a real person. And I think, yeah, I mean, it, clearly people do become absolutely obsessed. The other, I, I'm at risk of going off on a bizarre tangent, but I love telling this story. It was a, a, another plot from Coronation Street, another big soap. All of our US listeners at the moment are like, what the hell are you guys talking yeah. about? <laughs> Coronation Street, it's another terrible soap opera that loads of people love. Um, and they did a big storyline, this is again about a million years ago, where the tram network derailed and the tram fell off this line and crashed into a pub or something. And supposedly the area that that, that is set, which I think is up near Manchester Way, mm -hmm. yeah? Sure. People were phoning up the tram network the next day going, are the trams running? Because I saw that one was derailed. <laughs> genuinely, no. genuinely, genuinely. Oh my god! And that, but that goes to show just how people, how much people buy into these people, stories, personalities, mm -hmm. characters, and it's yeah, it blows my mind. It really does. And to you know, I say to tie that back to 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 my world and the online world. You know, it's it's sometimes the dangers uh, of social media. Is you know, is 
And it comes up a lot, you know, believing the hype or buying into this life that creators... I I struggle to use the word influencers, but I I realise it's a more global term, so I'll say the word influencers. But, you know, influencers portray, you know, it's, it's only ever a very small part of someone's life and it's a it's a life that they're presenting in a certain way uh, it's it's often a business and a lot of it can be smoke and mirrors a lot of it can, can be crap and a lot of it can be misconstrued or misinterpreted and so especially if you're sitting there going oh, I really want to start a car YouTube channel but I haven't got the money of Shmi or I haven't got the access of seeing through glass or I haven't got the tattoos of supercars of London whatever it might be um You've got to sort of take that all with a pinch of salt and 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 find your own route and your own path. Um, but but also say understand that that's a big part of it is presenting only certain parts of of someone's life and um, you never know what's going on behind the yeah behind the charade. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a really a difficult question that people sometimes ask me about my own career, but I think yours would be a, quite a fun answer. What is one of your absolute highlights of your career so far? The point where you think to yourself, how the hell have I got here? This is amazing. Hmm. This is going to be one of those core memories created. Uh, the thing is, like, there have been been so many moments, and definitely more recently somewhere, I'm really pinching myself. The one I have to say, because... 10-year-old me wouldn't forgive myself. I, I drove a bloody Formula One car. So, wow. so tw- 2018, uh, drove a, it was a Lotus chassis that Raikkonen won at Abu Dhabi in, which had been rebranded into the Renault, for, uh, Renault livery at the time. And it was around um, Paul Ricard in France. And that was, I mean, that was every dream I ever had for myself. So just before that world trip, I was kind of like, I've, I've kind of done it now. I've kind of completed it. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I'm finished. Um, so that was... But I knew about it for so long that I'd kind of build up to it. But there have been so many other moments, you're right. I mean, Vettel, you already mentioned, um, going to my first ever Ferrari press launch, like being invited to the factory and driving a car around Fiorano and things like that. Um, there was a moment, I say it all to somehow ties to Ferrari and Formula One, embarrassingly, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, those have been life goals. I, uh, I went to a race... Maybe it was the end of... No, it was June 2019. And I think I was at Austin for the Formula One. And I was walking around the paddock with some amazing access and genuinely felt like I knew loads of people. Like People were coming up and saying hi, like whether it was from teams or Pirelli or, you know, agencies. And I was walking around, I was like, oh, my God, like, I know so many people in F1. <laughs> and I was like, I'm here with passes. I got insane access. Like, I know drivers. Like, it was just the weirdest moment where I was like, oh, my God, everything that I'd kind of hoped and dreamed of you know, when I was a young kid and also starting my PR job and things like that have come true in a completely different way to a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, This is pretty amazing. But um, I like to think I've kept my feet on the ground. So most days I'm pretty ecstatic with with what I'm doing. Um, But those those three uh, Ferrari slash Formula One related opportunities uh, stand out massively. Amazing. Yeah, it's... uh, Can you remember if you got up to a good pace in the F1 car because I love seeing people drive these things that yeah might have driven a lot of sports cars and maybe even some downforce cars but F1 is it really is a different level isn't it some people say you're not driving an F1 car you're flying it because it's so focused on aero that's exactly it so so I did a long chat about this on a channel called Vin Wiki out in the US yeah. and and slightly annoyingly uh, but also good someone chopped the little 
two minute section of me talking about it and put it on TikTok and it's gone viral on TikTok. <laughs> but like totally uncredited to me. So I'm like, oh damn it, like my first viral TikTok and it's not even credited to me. Um, but yeah, so so for sure, no, take any fast road car you've driven. I'm thinking, you know, f- for your listeners, that could be anything from a Mark IV Golf through to if you've driven a McLaren P1 or anything. Yeah. Whatever you comprehend of speed, Formula One is is another level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now as I say, I, I've been obsessed forever, so I I thought going into it, I kind of knew what to expect. But I spoke to lots of people who would know Ollie Webb, great racing driver, Max Chilton, uh, ex Formula One driver, before the experience to try and maximise that opportunity and they all said basically it's going to come down to the braking because the acceleration it will blow your mind and you'll achieve it but you you'll half know what to expect the downforce you're just not going to go quick enough like the fundamental truth is you're not going to go quick enough tonight you won't have the balls so the best thing that you'll experience is the brakes and they were so right because we spent the whole morning in f three or f4 no f4 cars which are basically go-karts with with wings so you're skirting around the place and and pretty much anyone could jump in an f4 car with any experience and 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 have a lot lot of fun by the time you get in the formula one car firstly you have the whole day prepping it and then make sure you fit and testing the pedals your feet are in stirrups so the pedals are basically got sort of you know blocks each other so that your your feet can't cross over different pedals you're sort of completely wedged in you take off the first acceleration is mind-boggling because it doesn't stop. You know, you've got a rocket ship behind you and it just doesn't stop. You know, I've been lucky enough to drive things like LaFerraris and Pagani Huayras and stuff. And at some point, the torque does peter out. Mm. Like, you just you just do feel like it's a Formula 1, it just doesn't happen. You're just getting and your head's rocketing around and it's mind-boggling and the noise, you know, unbelievable. The downforce, you know, we had been practising all morning in the F4 corners to take this right-hander flat, <laughs> which I'd just about done. Um, and that was maybe a... 95 or 100 miles an hour in the Formula one car you're approaching the corner at 160 i'm like i'm not going flat around that thing <laughs> so again the downforce didn't happen but we're heading towards the first corner and i think right brakes 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 and then the f4 car is breaking at around 150 meter board so i thought i'm going to send it and i'm going to break just after the 50 meter board and see what happens so hurtling towards the corner and i see the 50 meter boards and i stamp as hard as i can on the brake and my head flies forward into the into the cockpit. I can't see a thing. The G-force is just ripping my helmet off my neck. I'm like, like trying to like shift down through the gears. And just as I'm strong enough to lift my head up out of my sort of crotch, I see the apex and I turn this thing and it goes around the corner and I'm just gone again. And I thought, oh my God, that I was not prepared for because... The braking, yes, insane, but the mechanical grip. Mm. You know, if you drive a go-kart, we all know the thing's a bit skittish, you know, you slam on the brakes too hard, the back steps out, the things are kind of, you know, all over the place. The Formula One car, it's just rocked. You feel like you're on rails. You feel like you are glued to the ground, at least at the speeds I was driving it. Um, But in terms of the stats, which was your initial question, speeds-wise, yeah, I think it was around 160, 165 miles an hour. Brakes, as hard as I pushed it, as near passing out as I experienced, (laughs) that was 42% brake pressure. So that was fairly embarrassing. Um, And, yeah, I say downforce. I don't think I really probably got close to it. So uh, I wasn't troubling any any records or any lap times, that's for sure. (laughs) I'm always, yeah, I I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, of course, everyone thinks, oh, well, you know, I've driven a car, so therefore I'm going to be good at this. 
And yeah, I love seeing those stats of saying, oh yeah, so you, you touched full throttle for 0.92 seconds. That was good. You're like, oh, <laughs> r- oh, right. Ah, right. Yeah. yeah. It's a totally <laughs> different experience. And I think obviously you're so aware that you're driving a Formula One course, car. Yeah. It, it gets in your way a little bit, you know, if, if that was the Formula Three cars as a build-up process, you'd probably give it a bit more, a bit more beans. But um, no, un- unbelievable. And look, let's face it, I'm never going to have that experience again. So uh, I, I, I remember it well. But I would, I'd love to do it again. Have a bit more confidence. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And see what would happen, but it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Well, if you own a Formula One car and you want Sam to drive it, please uh, send, a, send an email to podcast at drivenchat.com, subject line, Sam can drive my F1 car. And if Thank we can pick that up for Sam, that. then uh, we'll be, we'll be Thank you so it. much. Let's talk about your own cars, because you've got some cars. You've got some really cool cars. I do indeed. I've been very lucky in that way. Yeah. Um, um, now, you have, a, you have a particular Ferrari that I... Uh, well, we, we share a passion for that particular era of Ferraris. And, and I think somebody highlighted to me, because we did a podcast, Andy and I did a podcast ooh, a, few, a few months ago now, and where I spoke to Vicky Butler-Henderson. And it was wonderful, because Vicky is one of these kind of standout, iconic people that really, for me personally, switched on a light bulb of go and, you know, you can go and do this. You can work in this car media space. Um, and hey, look at me now. So that's quite <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, Vicky did a review on a Challenge Stradale back in the yesteryear. And I told her about that and I told her about how that really switched on a light bulb for me. And that was kind of the first time I saw a Ferrari on the TV. I mean, interestingly, the 550 Marinello that you mentioned earlier in the Nick Cage film, that was the kind of the first Ferrari I looked at. And what, as a model, I thought, oh my goodness me, I really want one of those one day. But that Challenge Stradale review that VBH did was the first time I saw a Ferrari on the TV and thought, oh, now I understand why they're so good. And I talked about that on my social feeds and I talked about it on the podcast. And quite a few people said to me, that's Sam's story that you've just told. And I was like, <laughs> okay, uh, it's definitely sure. my story. But so I think we have the same story. Was there a We st- have exactly the same yeah. story. We have exactly the same story. So uh, my wife's in the next door room, so I'll now whisper. But uh, um, <laughs> l- l- like many car people in the UK, Vicky Butler-Henderson was one million percent a big crush on, m- for me, in terms of uh, cars, yeah. journalism, women, I mean, everything. I was, I was fairly obsessed at, at, at that age. Um, and, yeah, the Ferrari thing was, was growing for me, the road car 
awareness obsession and I saw that same video mm. oh, it was not video that it was on TV at the time wasn't it so yeah. that same film or review and here was this kind of woman that I was fairly obsessed with in Italy uh, looking fantastic driving this unbelievable Ferrari which she kept saying the Formula 1 team was sort of you know part of and it was the yeah. race team and it was the race car and it sounded the bomb and yeah that for me cemented the 360 is this kind of especially the Challenge Stradale this halo car mm. and it always was and when I started seen through glass and my online presence forever that car's been the car you know i've had moments where i've driven to sloan street to see one in my pajamas because i just was excited (laughs) to go and see one Uh, and i still freak out like a six-year-old boy when i see them in dealerships or on the road and uh, about four years ago um i unbelievably was i owned a mclaren of all things couldn't quite believe i got to that point in my life but it was nearly bankrupting me so i was looking for a way to get out of it and i had a dream that i was driving a manual challenge Shadali, and i owned no a manual way. challenge Shadali. and i was like and i woke up and i was like oh that should be my next car like i, I can do it now like heck i own a mclaren like why can't i own a challenge Shadali? and obviously remembered that they didn't build a manual challenge Shadali from factory <laughs> Um, just thought I would check just in case there's, you know, like one in Liechtenstein everyone forgot about. Um, <laughs> but no, confirmation, no manager. So I'm like, okay. And then also at the time, right-hand drive challenge Shadali's, no joke, £300,000. Wow. This was four years ago. They were £300,000. Um, they've cooled off a bit since then. But I was like, okay, let's, let's, let's think this through a little yeah. bit. And so I thought, okay, let's look at the 360 and see what my options are there. And I did some research and I realised and I knew that you could get a fairly aggressive spec 360 in terms of manual, of course, which is what I wanted, but as lightweight as possible. I wanted the bucket seats from the Stradale slash the Enzo. I wanted the roll cage, fire extinguisher, challenge grill. And I put a tweet out saying I had a dream about owning a manual challenge Stradale and I'm, I'm now looking for a, you know, something, something. And some guy replied saying, oh, my dad's business has one of these cars, check it out. And I clicked on it and it was the car. It was red, tan leather, bucket seats, roll cage, harnesses, fire extinguisher, challenge grill. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it was about 9 p.m. at night and I called the garage about 17 times. I left like four voicemails. They're like, okay, we don't, like the car is sold. Like this guy is paying full, full rates. (laughs) Um, But no, so yeah, long story short, ended up buying that car four years ago. Um... And it has been an absolute dream. I've been, I've been working on it a lot since I got it, even though it was in great shape when I bought it. We have fettled with it. Um, uh, managed to track down an original Challenge Radale exhaust, which we put on. Oh, wow. Put the actual Challenge race car ECU on it, so it now revs up to 9,500 RPM instead of 8,500. Um, it's had a little bit of work on the brakes as well, just to improve the feel from them. Um, and it's actually now going through a full, full paint at the moment um, by a team called Kudos Concord Restoration. Um, so it's been a bare metal uh, paint job, which is fairly nuts. But uh, yeah, absolutely adore that thing. It is. And now, because of the way it is, my desire for Stradale is still there, but not so urgent. I feel like no yeah. rush. I'm like, mm-hmm. at some point I'll own one 100%, but I've got 90% of the experience with a manual box. I, I don't need one. It's just just because I want one. <laughs> you want that badge. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just want it because it looks the bomb and it's the halo car, but with everything I do online, there's no point in having both. So I, I, I'm in no rush and at some point in my life I'll, I'll buy one, but if I had that money uh, right now, there's probably a few other cars that I would buy first. Yeah, so is that? would you say that is the pinnacle dream car or do you have, are there a few? 
No, that that is the if I won the Euro Millions, that's the first card going by. Yeah, it has to be the top of the list pinnacle. But I think like all of us, at least us three here, there must be a thousand cards oh, that God. we would buy if we yeah. won the Euro Millions. Yeah. Like, um, so uh, yeah, very uh, a very hard question to answer. I think the ultimate five car garage, yeah. but. Uh, we're spoiled where we get to see and experience lots of things I suppose that's very true yeah I, I do feel a bit like the auntie at Christmas that's like oh so you like cars what's your favourite you like yeah. that's, <laughs> this, it, that's not what, how this works what no. price bracket which country are you talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about <laughs> V8s or V10s individual <laughs> throttle bodied or yeah, yeah. No. you've got a bit too niche for me there yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, so alongside, oh, and by the way, actually, because yeah, you mentioned the the Ferrari is in paint at the moment. I don't know if mm. I know what's happening with that paint. Is it just going? Is it going back to the original colour? <laughs> yeah, it's it a is. red car going red. Right. Which, I, mean, I previously vinyl wrapped a red F type red, so my audience <laughs> won't be that surprised. <laughs> but but yeah, I uh, I think there's a lot of people because online it's a fashionable thing to do, isn't it? You know, paint it purple, paint it green. Yeah, it'll be amazing. Yeah. But no, the whole point was to restore that car to being the best version of itself. It's, it's 20 years old this year. It's a 2002 car. Mm. So I, I want it to be in the prime of its life. Um, nice. And yeah, not, not change its identity, just make it, uh, you know, in best shape as possible. So it's going Rosso Corsa and that cliched guy with a red and tan Ferrari. It's going to be the most perfect Rosso Corsa. There you go. Shout out to Kudos. In the, <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, I'm trying to think. So, I mean, we've known we've known each other and of each other now for I'm, it must be about ten years, I guess, through various car circles. And I'm tr- I'm trying to now calculate in my head all the different cars that you've had in that time. So, since since the YouTube chapter of your life took off, and I I can remember the McLaren. I can also remember the time that I was at the time I was working for Car Throttle at their Farringdon office, and I think you rocked up in an Alpha four C. Yes, yeah, that's totally um, right. Um, so hold on a sec. So I will only work if I go from the start, otherwise I'll forget something. Yeah, so uh, Audi TTS was how I started the channel, replaced with Alpha 4C, uh, Jaguar F-Type R, the rear-wheel drive one, which still is the ultimate, McLaren 540C, Abarth 695 um Ferrari 360, 718 Cayman S, Hold on, hold on. 911 Carrera T, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 911 996 40th anniversary, Abarth 595 Competizione, BMW X3, another F Type R, which isn't mine, it's been lent to me. Oh, crap, what am I forgetting? There'll be something my audience are yelling at me for. <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's ridiculous, though. I mean, how, I mean, I don't know how many cars that is, but that's a joke. Like, yeah. that's more cars than anyone should need to or want to own. And at one point, oh, a Citroen. I had a Citroen WRC C4 replica. Oh, yeah, of course you did. Which yeah. was amazing. I took on Snow on Tour. Snow Tour. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly, which was, which was epic. So, yeah, I mean, back, as I say, there'll be a few things in there. All right, uh, Mini JC, that was a long-term loan. Anyway, there have been stupid cars, and fundamentally it boils down to, at, at, at the beginning of YouTube, it was very popular to buy and sell cars and change cars. So I got caught up in that. Mm. Um, and I've been super lucky. Um, but no one ever needs more than two cars, realistically. No, true. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, even one is fine. But, but you know, once you get two, you're already pushed. Um, <laughs> so how the likes of Shmi and JWW and TG do it, I don't know. Um, well, it, it answer's got... simple, Sam. You buy a warehouse to put them yeah, in. Yeah, buy a warehouse. Just, just six people buy to, a yeah. warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good on him. Yeah. 
quid on him. I think it's amazing. Yeah. This week alone, he's bought another two, I think. So um, uh, that's Schmier, at least. But yeah, yeah. no, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. But I, I'm, I, yeah, I get nervous with my money. So, so I, I often buy and sell to sort of move things on. But heck, why not? We only live once, right? Well, exactly, exactly. Where do you stand on the whole cars for investments thing? Do you, do you, like, do you like to explore that avenue? Or for you, is it more about the... Enjoyment. Yeah, that's the car that. I want to yeah. buy. That's the car I want to enjoy. I'll keep that for as long as I enjoy it, and then it will move on. Because we've always said that you can't buy a car for investment. So mm. it, it, simply because you, you never know which way it's going to go. And like, you, if you don't love it, if you only ever think of it as an investment, then sh- there'll be points where you're like, oh, if I've got to put money into this to fix it, then it's um, I'm losing part of yeah. my investment. So is that something? Yeah, as, as John said, really, that you think actually no, this will go up, or I think this will be a, a smart choice, or is it always love? Oh. Yeah, always love. I mean, my friends mock me and call me the king of depreciation because I've, <laughs> I've tended to always buy cars that lose a ton of money. Um, but, but yeah, like, you guys must get this all the time. DMs or emails, you know, I'm thinking about buying this. Do you think yeah. this will hold its money or do you think this will go up? And I'm the same as you. Like, who cares? Buy it and it's a car. You know, there have been a lot of incredible stories recently, for sure, um, uh, of people making lots of money, you know, amount of people that I meet, oh, I had an F40 when they were 150 grand, if only I'd held on to mm-hmm. it. But you didn't, you didn't, yeah, you, you, right, you know, yeah. you, you sold it. And you can get lucky, and if you're lucky, then great. I, I had an X3 M40i for the last 18 months. I've just sold it for the same price I bought it 18 months ago, mm. and I, I put 20,000 miles on it. So great, amazing, incredible. But at not one point did I think about that. No. Um, it's a car, and I want to use it, and I want to enjoy it, and... I think I'm a huge fan of high mileage examples. And in my mind, how often do you hear about a 250 GTO going up for mm. auction and then someone going, ah, but it's got 60,000 miles on the clock. Like, <laughs> not that keen. I'm like, come on, mate. Like, you know, get out there and have fun and enjoy it. Cause, because you only live once. And mm. if you genuinely want to buy cars as investments, it's, it's hard to do. And you, you can't really be a petrol hunter, I don't think. You can't want to drive... You've got to do it like art collections, something like that. You know, you can't be a petrolhead. You're just doing it for finances. Yeah. Um, because what's the point of just looking at a car? You, you've got to drive it. Yeah, yeah. There's something very, very sad, isn't there, about when you see these cars. And it, it ranges from classic sports and racing cars through to brand new supercars. And you see them get bought. There's a big kind of handover ceremony, and then that car gets into a trailer goes into a white tiled warehouse surrounded by glass walls and that's where it sits and you think what a waste you know a car that's been engineered to be fantastic to be driven 10 tenths all the time and still work perfectly and there it sits doing no miles because somebody wants to make 100 grand from it in three or four months it's like oh the only thing i understand is maybe like 40s or 50s cars or dare i say maybe even some 60s cars you're like if you're gonna have a beautiful piece of art Mm. an x race car on display because for whatever reasons you can't run it don't want to run it and it's just going to be an art piece in your house i kind of get that more because these days those early cars are probably are a little bit more of an art piece but what i can't bear is I will get a GT3 allocation and either flip it immediately or sit on it for a little bit or, you know, Carrera GTs, I'm just going to buy it and just leave it because it's going to go up in a lot of money. Now, it's easy for me to say because I don't have the money to buy one and, and I don't have the money to make. If, you're, if I told you two, look, you could buy a car today for 100 grand and in two years' time it's going to be worth 350 grand, we're all going to make a lot of money, let's do it. You kind of think, okay, cool, like, it's a way to make money, great. 
but as car people, I couldn't have an SNS AMG just sitting downstairs and not go near it. I'm going to want to drive it and see what it's like. So I think it depends your mindset. If you're in it for money, fine, Mm -hmm. whatever, but but don't call yourself a car guy. You're you're just trying to make some money. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And there are cheaper avenues into cars, you know, appreciating cars that you can still drive. You know, performance cars from mid mid 90s through to kind of mid noughties there are plenty of cars you can go out with not an awful lot of money you know still a pile of money we can go out and buy stuff that you can still enjoy that chances are yeah you know, we can't say you're definitely going to make money but chances are in 10 years from from now you'll be able to sell for quite a comfortable profit and you've had an amazing time in that car so yeah. i think that's it i think try and find things that you're going to enjoy and and, and enjoy them and think about the the selling or the value almost later you know because my my dad spends his life staring at his stock saying, oh, I've lost so much money today. <laughs> oh, oh, I've made so much money. I'm like, but have you actually? Yeah. Or is it all just numbers on a spreadsheet? And that's the thing, until you're selling, um, you know, you never really know. And there's not a lot of point in sitting there going, oh, yeah, my car's gone up 20 grand this year. Like, who cares? If you're not going to sell it, just enjoy it. And then when it comes to selling, see where you've ended up. But um, anyway, it's it's not a world I operate in, so I struggle to understand it. But there'll be people out there who... As they make lots of money, buy it, and and they need to or they want to. So so fair enough, fine. Um, but I definitely buy to drive, buy to enjoy, and if I got a GT3 allocation, <coughs> any Porsche dealers, uh, I would be I'd be sticking as many miles on it as I could. Yeah, yeah. The the GT3 one is a fascinating one. It's a very good friend of mine has just just been able to buy for the first time a brand new GT3 from Porsche wow. Solihull, but he's been trying for years. And when I say years, I mean like 10 years. He's been trying to get on that allocation, despite owning two previous iterations of GT3 as used cars and buying a Macan and you know, doing all the things you need to do as an individual. And this is a guy that drives on track days, drives professionally. You know, he's a, he competes in, the, in motorsport. And he's like, what What more do I need to do to be given a car that I'm actually going to use for the purpose that it's been designed to be used for? So, um, yeah, it, it should be, there should be some sort of test. Like you should go in and sit an exam and, and you know, what circuit's this and get shown a silhouette. And if you know the answer, then that's another point towards, <laughs> ah, good, you're clearly yeah, somebody that likes GT3s, yes. What is understeer? Ah, I know this, yeah. yeah. I, 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 my whole thing is, which is never going to happen, but my whole thing is, just be first come, first serve. Yeah. This is sold out, it's sold out, like, because the, the, the worst thing is, which we all see, and it's an endless debate, isn't it? You know, it's Porsche's business, so fine, mm. but is the flipped low mileage cars if if you are not going to drive it if you're if you're buying it to make a buck and this is back through the porsche dealers mm. we just had this whole conversation about making money if i told you you could get a gt3 allocation and make 75 grand by selling it that's that's 75 grand great who's going to turn that down fine mm. i don't blame the individual i blame the porsche giving that allocation if you know the guy doesn't want the car or you're selling it again on his behalf to make a quick buck as a dealer mm. that frustrates me because there are people out there who want to buy the car. So so either build more or do it on a first-come, first-serve, but don't reserve the right to give it to your trusted customer who you know doesn't really want it or who you're then going to flip it on for, for on their behalf. Um, I don't blame anyone for trying to make some money, but I get frustrated that we can't buy a car that we want because there are people out there who just want to flip them on to, to, to make quick cash. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that dealer, so that Porsche dealer that sold that particular gt3 on the day of collection said if in six months 
you're looking to change this and maybe we can get you an allocation for an RS, uh, then please make sure you bring it back to us for us to sell it. I.e. saying, of course. we know that you could put this up for sale tomorrow and get 70 to 100 grand more than you've just paid. We know that. We absolutely know that. But if you want that RS and if you want that next GT3, make sure it comes back to us. So we'll get you another 50 grand, but we'll also make 20. And you just think, oh, it is a game and everyone's playing it. It's money. It's very the, sad. Yeah. It's very the sad. world's controlled by money and it means that, that us paupers who, who just want to have fun in cars uh, yeah. get, get kicked in the nuts a little bit. But um, it, it is what it is. We, nothing we can do. And, you know, it's... Forever, those of us who can't get allocations will moan and complain. Um, yeah. And those that can, probably sitting around, sipping on champagne, having a laugh. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. What modern cars excite you at the moment? Are there any manufacturers that you really think, oh, they're doing well and I want to have a go in that? Or, and vice versa, actually. So I think you're like, why are they? Where, where's the hype on that new Fiat Panda? I don't understand it. Fiat Panda's <laughs> brilliant, by the way. And I won't, I won't Fiat, yeah, I've, heard, I've heard as much. Ah, new car. I struggle with new cars a bit. Um, I'm all about sort of emotion and feeling and and character from a car. And all new cars are so good they kind of lack in those those criteria. Um, that's not to say there aren't things that excite me. I, uh, confidentially, uh, <laughs> I'm off uh, on Sunday to drive the 296 GTB, the new Ferrari. Oh, lovely. Uh, which I'm very intrigued by. I. I worry or I think it's going to be too much and maybe void of character, but I, I'm intrigued, so I can't say it doesn't excite me, it does. Um, but most new stuff leaves me feeling a little cold. I I am someone who grew up loving things in the late 90s and noughties, so like all of us, maybe, we like the cars that we grew up with, so I think that's where I lean towards. For me, the the modern classic market is where I really would spend my money or the stuff that I want to drive the most is a... GT3 RS 4 litre, the 997 generation, or, uh, you know, a manual 575 Marinello, or whatever, you know. So, so yeah, that's kind of stuff that really excites me. But there are some cool new things. I'm going to say I think I'm excited by some of the electric stuff coming out, mm -hmm. some of the stuff that's more retro-styled. Um, I, think, I think the electric cars are getting very good. I just think the infrastructure is appalling, so yeah. living with them is nonsensical. But, but as cars, they're getting better and better. Um, I'm sad that the kind of hot hatch is going away a bit. I think they're all getting a bit too serious. You know, the RS3 is a joke. You know, they're being sold at 75 grand yeah. and it's more powerful than, you know, than my Ferrari. And, you know, I, I, I long for, I think Hyundai are doing some cool stuff mm. with their, their end things. But, you know, I, you know I, I long for more up GTIs and things like that. I'm sad that that's going away from us a bit. But there are cars out there. There are cars out there. The Amira. I'm excited for the Amira mm -hmm. uh, from Lotus and stuff like that. But but generally, not much new stuff gets me really that hyped. I hate all the hypercar stuff. I hate all <laughs> yeah. the hypercar stuff. Kills me. Just because it's so unattainable or because well, it's, it's become just... a numbers game. It's a sort of willy waving contest, isn't it? Contest, isn't it? You know, like, and especially whilst whilst Ferrari and Porsche and Lamborghini aren't putting out the big halo stuff. Mm. It seems like you get all these companies, you know, Koenigseggs, and uh, dare I say it, I'm going to upset a few people. The Gordon Murray and the Valkyrie, and all these different things, which is just a bit like, oh, let's just spend lots of money on these kind of ludicrous cars with ten thousand horsepower and fundamentally a, a pointless in almost every situation and scenario. But are just about saying, I've bought the latest hypercar for eight million euros. Like, you know, I, I think again, I don't because I'm not in that world, it's hard for me to understand it, mm. but it always just seems like a bit of a 
top trumps a billionaire's contest of who can get the latest, most expensive, most horsepower hypercar without any thought into, yeah, what, I don't know. I, I say credibility is really, a, that's a brutal word to say because, of course, Gordon Murray's got all the credibility anyone would ever need. But, yeah, I just, I just feel like it's, let's build something that we can charge a lot of money for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely get you. I, I, I find it very sad, this world of, I bought this because I can. And this isn't just cars. Yeah, this is watches, houses, boats. A lot of the time, you're not buying a, a Submariner Rolex that's capable of going 100 metres underwater because you're going to go 100 metres underwater. You bought it because you can. And also, you've paid 20 grand list over or over list for it because you can't buy them at the moment. You know, And it's yeah, exactly the same with cars. Yeah, the amount of people that are going out buying these amazing machines because they can and it might have the capability of going from 0 to 60 in 1.3 seconds or whatever it, you know, whatever ridiculous figures people are trying to push now. And you think, okay, that's cool, but are you going to do that? Are you going to, are you going to take that car on track? Are you going to ever use the, the set of slicks that come with the car? They're, are they still on the pallet in the garage? I suppose because... that's the thing. When you've got such your hypercar um, capabilities, it's almost as bad as only one and not even driving it at all because you're just not using it anyway yeah. to the extent it should be. So what's yeah. the difference? It's one of the, isn't it? But, but we're always always chasing the best, the ultimate, the flagship. And, yeah, you know, I went to Finale Mondiale with Ferrari, which is their big sort of world finals, their racing programme last year. And I got lent to Portofino M. Mm. And I was genuinely like, oh, my God, I love this car. I was like, this is, this is the best thing in the world. Like, I want one. Like, this is incredible. And it's a car that I think petrol heads or enthusiasts often laugh and joke at. It's like, oh, that's, that's the car Ferrari built for collectors wives you know that's mm. that's the girl for our it's not very good it should have been a maserati heck no it's incredible yeah. and it's it's usable performance I and mean, it's 600 horsepower it's more performance than you'd ever need yeah, yeah. super capable you know great balance great dynamics whereas actually you look at something like a 296 gtb i bet you i'm going to say yeah it's good but you, you you're using five percent of the performance where in the portofino m at least i'm at 75 percent of the performance mm. um but most people would laugh or look down on a Portofino when they walk into a Ferrari showroom and want something more, want something bigger, want something better. That's, it's, it, and, and that's the world of excess that we live in, I think. And yeah. I fall into that trap just like everyone does. Uh, but in cars, especially in the hypercar thing, yeah, it, I just feel like companies are building them because there are people out there with lots of money looking for a way to spend it so that they can say, look at my crazy collection of stupid hypercars. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amy and I looked at each other as if to say, "Yeah." But I suppose for me, the um, you know, the supercar and the hypercar world is such a different mentality. Like I've I've been brought up on the classic car mm. world, and and that is my core love. So it's quite interesting for for me to watch this conversation mainly between you two about this, as you said, this complete hype around some of these cars. Which, as you said, if it's not the top of the the cream of, of wonder then people are like oh but it's not that is it whereas in the i suppose for in the classic car world you've still got this love for whatever you drive so it's it's really interesting from from me from the flip side to listen to this this other way of of thinking about of cars i guess generally yeah and if you think about the great thing about classics and and collectible classics you know big money stuff you know if we're talking two three million pounds like some of these hypercars or more it's often the story the the history the the heritage you know where that car's been what that car's done Mm the the patina the connect you know all of that which goes into that inherent value um that makes up why that car's so valuable whereas some of this new stuff 
as I say, has none of that. Often there are companies that are unheard of, that have no history, um, but it's just the fact that you can have coloured carbon or the fact that it's got 1,800 horsepower or the fact that it's, you know, only seven of them are being made. And, and that's what I think I struggle to understand so much because I get why you would pay £4 million pounds for an ex-Sterling Moss, whatever, that yes. raced in this and completed that. I get that value. Um, I don't understand the value in something that's brand new, untested, mm-hmm. is probably going to break, probably going to have issues, has no support system, has no after-sales service, but allows you to post on Instagram. Okay, so for example, this is very niche. Uh, a car got launched, in inverted commas, this week in Abu Dhabi uh, oh, by yeah. a big collector who is... Yeah, he's ordered some very unique bespoke cars from big manufacturers over the years. He's got an incredible collection, and he's brilliant for sharing his collection online. I applaud him for that. And he's built a sort of theoretical ultimate GT car based on a Ferrari 812 Superfast. Mm. Personally, purely personally, I think it's hideous. I think it's the most <laughs> awful thing I've ever seen in my life. He, he engaged with a whole load of the, the world's best car spotters or car photographers street car photographers i'd call them it's maybe not professionals but street car photographers to go out and and um cover this launch for whatever reason and maybe they genuinely feel this way every single one of them wow this is the the ultimate gt oh unbelievable i personally do not believe they genuinely think that because It's hit. Like I'm sorry, it's it's not good. And this guy has created some of the world's most beautiful bespoke cars mm. and some incredible projects. And he's got an amazing collection. And good for him if he wants to build it. I applaud him. Go on. But this sort of mentality of because there are seven and because it's this collector and because it's this certain guy, we're all going to herald this thing as being the most amazing, unbelievable creation. Nah, come out and say it's not for me. I think it looks crap. But like, yeah, good on him. Um, that's what annoys me is there's this this online perception of lots of money unique craziness like from a big collector needs to be applauded for no actual sense yeah <laughs> it's almost going full circle is it i know you, when you did your um your conversation with chris harris on on his podcast there was that we touched on the um the kind of influencer practice of car launches, influence going to car launches, and suddenly they're sat amongst esteemed motor journalists who have a degree in writing and journalism, and and some of them very very accomplished drivers, and they're almost being this pressure as a influencer, and we're we're all guilty of this. I did this when I first started out doing freelance journalism. You know, I was going on my first ever car launch was a three hundred eight Peugeot. I know. Hello. They, uh, <laughs> they they arranged transport into Cardiff for me for that one. I put me up in a hotel. Check you out. I know. And I drove the car and I said it was brilliant. And I was like, oh, it's a really good car. You know, wrote this article about it. You know, I look back on that article now and I think, it wasn't a good car. It was a Peugeot. It was a Peugeot with a convertible roof. It was It was a very mundane car on a mundane launch in a mundane location. Hi, Peugeot, by the way. Um, yeah, it, it was... It was it wasn't great, but I kind of got built up in this hype. So suddenly to then be, you know, flown out to do Range Rover launches or Bentley drives or you know, whatever it might be. Okay, I've used two examples of cars that are actually very, very good. Um, but let's say Lada are going to fly you out and give you a five-star private jet into a seven-star hotel in Dubai and then drive the car and get given the food. It's going to be very easy to go, oh, well, it's all brilliant because I've enjoyed this amazing experience. So I guess maybe there's some strategy there with that 
that new car. I'm trying to think of what it what it's called now. Maybe we won't say the name. I don't know. People people will people will know. I think. Um, but I guess I understand the the idea of getting all of those spotters in because they are going to get excited by it and it is going to build up hype. Um, and if that's just to feed one man's ego, then maybe that's the purpose and that's it. it it's not a, yeah. not a car that's going to be appearing in many showrooms around the world. It's and I, I, I don't I don't blame him. I don't blame them. Yeah. I, I, I definitely I, I think I blame more the culture that social media has created yeah. of uh, yeah applauding or celebrating some of this stuff in a bit of a vacuous way like there's you know it, there's not often much sort of reason it's just like and i'm trying to think there's you know there's many collectors around the world who who do this who buy sort of crazy specs or or or, or whatever it is and they're just kind of applauded for doing so you know just for the sake of it like oh yeah brilliant brilliant, brilliant. Oh, it's, it's epic i'm like yeah but do you like do you know him like do you know anything about yeah. him or do you know anything about that car no no it's so cool though like and and that's just a social media thing. That's just a perception thing. Yeah. And um, as I, yeah, no one's to blame. It's a, it's a culture thing for sure. Yeah, it's um, almost the, tribal, the, isn't it? Like football teams. Yeah. you know, people. That's something I I will never understand that conversation in a pub that you'll overhear when somebody says, "Oh, we did really well this weekend." Sorry, we we did. You, yeah. you, oh, you were there. Yeah. Were you, are you on the team? No, I don't. I don't get it. And I know. No. I know full well there'll be. Many thousands of people listen to this right now who will be huge sports fans, football fans. They're like, no, 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 it's because it's your part of the team. I know there'll be people shouting it, but for me, I don't get it. And yeah, as you say, even more confusing is people that build up a tribe mentality over people that they follow on social media. I'm like, wow, gosh, I mean, lovely that you're supporting. Without supporters and followers, none of us would be sitting here doing what we do now, but come on, you know. like It's that kind of thing where where you're sort of championing things, you know, sort of yeah well as you say like i mean i get it in my comments a lot you know i'll say something like oh this car isn't very good and i'll see say oh yeah but blah blah i said it was amazing so clearly you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) or you know like i'll say no one's buying a thing oh yeah but this guy's got seven of them you forgot this this is the best collection out there you forgot to mention him like so um yeah it's always the case you know you're always gonna have people that support other people and, and follow them blindly and um yeah i'm you know i'm part of the blame for that you know I, i'm part of this car online car culture um on social media so so i can't i can't be too upset about it but yeah it, it frustrates me a bit when it gets into this yeah, crazy world of crazy money for cars mm-hmm. effectively we're going to round up this podcast by saying it's all our fault yeah <laughs> sorry it's all our fault but get involved Join the <laughs> and make sure you're following and make sure you're liking and comment and if somebody says anything bad about our podcast then make sure you tell them about it and yeah yeah yeah, exactly it's uh, it's, the best podcast it it is a bizarre world of uh, yeah fueling your own fire even though that fire at times is inside your own house Um, and that's all a bit weird so yeah gosh well please don't set your own house on fire no yeah consumer advice is generally don't start (laughs) fires in your house unless you have a fireplace do it there but even then be careful and we didn't officially say start that fire just in case your house does burn down Legal team working frantically yeah. in the background. Yeah, there's yeah. a lawyer just in the other room. Going to cut that like whole this, section. Yeah, yeah. The, the Team America panic wave. Stop, stop. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the consumer advice is don't do anything. Just do nothing. 
and then nothing yeah. can go wrong. Just listen to this podcast. Yeah, please. just listen to this podcast. <laughs> and Sam's podcast. And Sam's podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. It's been great fun. I really appreciate it. I hope we haven't bored people too much. But uh, yeah, good to catch up. And so I, I, I appreciate the invite. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy that Ferrari on Sunday. I too am going to see a 296, but I think I'm only going to a static display. Ah. It's a dealer launch. It looks great. It does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, no, enjoy that. I'd be really interested to see Thank what you, you think because I think it's being marketed mm. as the the most fun Ferrari ever or something like that, which is supposedly. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I guess. We'll find out. Yeah. I might be upside down in a tree by the end of the day, who knows? <laughs> well, for people who have been living under a rock and want to see you upside down in a tree on, on, on your various social media platforms, where can they find you? Yes, so I'm at Seen Through Glass on pretty much anything. So uh, uh, YouTube mainly, but yeah, think of it like looking through a windscreen or the, the lens of a camera. Seen Through Glass. Because <laughs> well, you weirdly. clearly still have people going, what does that mean? Why yeah, or I get seen through the looking glass. I'm like, not quite. <laughs> yeah. uh, very yeah. different, very different vibe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sam, Sam, thank you so much. It's been, uh, yeah, as Amy says, amazing to have you with us. Um, hope to see you again socially very soon, doing some fun Absolutely. stuff with cars. And uh, yeah, thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this record breaking hour and 40 odd minutes which is wonderful lovely to have you here remember you can engage with us you can get in contact with the show podcast at drivenchat.com or you can slip into our dms on all of the different social media networks we read absolutely all of them uh, so yeah good news bad news good reviews bad reviews feel free to just be honest and um, chances are it'll be me that replies to you and if you really mean i'll Nobody's mean. I don't know why I ever say that. <laughs> Nobody's I'll mean. If you're really you. mean, I'll just mean ignore comments. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we we're very lucky. Um, so yeah, keep being nice uh, to us and everyone else, and especially Sam Fain. <laughs> Thank you, mate. <laughs> right. See you, Sam. Thanks very much. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.